In this podcast episode, I've spoken to Audrey Waters, who's the author of a new book you may have heard of called Teaching Machines, The History of Personalised Learning. I was really excited to speak to her. She's been covering and looking at the history and future of education technology since 2010, where she blogs at Hack Education. I was really just interested to have a chat with her and to get her views and to find out more about her book. Hi, Audrey. Um, welcome to Class Futures. So excited to have you here um, as part you. of the, the summer series podcast I'm, I'm, I'm running. Um, I'm, I'm stoked, actually. And um, I'm just thank you so much for having, having me on, on, on my show and being part of my series. Um, for, for listeners who haven't heard about yourself or don't know who you are, how would you introduce yourself, Audrey? Uh, let's see. I'm a writer. I write about education, education technology specifically. Um, I think I'm a, I'm known as a critic of ed tech. And you know, when people hear that, they assume that means you know that I don't like ed tech. And it's you know it's, that's silly because of course food critics love food, mm. um, and theater critics love the theater. But they're just you know I think when you're a critic, you're just sort of more interested in I think. Um, the food in the theater and the teaching and learning being quality. And so, and I think so much of ed tech simply isn't. So a lot of times I do have to leave rather terse reviews, if you will, <laughs> for the subject matter. Yeah. So um, you've recently launched your book, which is um, Teaching Machines, the History of Personalized Learning. Uh, your book birthday, as you tweeted, was last week on the 3rd of August. Happy book birthday. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of finishing my copy of that. But in, in a kind of synopsis, what, what are you kind of looking at there? And why do you think it was kind of you know, relevant for you to pitch that kind of book? So I think it's incredibly important to talk about the history of education and the history of education technology. Um, you know, the, the, ways, the ways in which uh, our institutions look, right? the ways in which our schools look, our classrooms look, um, our, pra our teaching practices, these all have a history. They don't sort of emerge out of nowhere. And it's important to consider sort of how we got here, particularly if we want to do something different, if we want to reimagine a different future, we do have to know why we ended up where we are. And so, and I think that it's particularly important because people who work in technology um, in general and ed tech in particular right now seem to really have a resistance to learning about history. They're so committed to the idea of innovation that their mm -hmm. ideas are brand new, that no one's ever thought of this stuff before. Um, and I think that that's incredibly, that's incredibly dangerous. And so, and you know, as someone who's interested in education, it's also, I mean, you, we should study history. Um, but so I wanted to tell the story of where personalized learning came from, because contrary, I think, to the story that a lot of ed tech um, pundits and entrepreneurs tell, personalized learning isn't brand new. It didn't even come with the computer. People have been interested in this idea for over a century and people have been building technologies for over a century that would quote unquote personalize teaching and learning. And so I wanted to tell, I wanted to tell that story. And so that's what the book is about. It's not, it's not about computers. In fact, it's <sighs> all of this stuff in the book takes place 
before computers. And I think that that's important. Yeah, so kind of refreshing the sense that it's not about tech or the latest piece of technology in the classroom in that sense. It's kind of us, whether we're teachers, I guess, or technologists or um, parents or stakeholders, people understanding the history around learning and teaching and the idea of automation. Yes. Um, yes. And I quite I like... Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, so I should say um, that the book, the book is very much about the history um, of sort of the early mid 20th century in the US. And it's very grounded in the Amer in American history. And so mm. apologies, <laughs> apologies to those who sort of, you know, from, from other countries. And I do think that the, you know, the history of schooling looks very different, for example, in the UK. Um, than it does in in the U.S. Um, but I wanted also to talk about you know the I wanted to talk about the the history of a specific place because that's the other thing I think that technology sort of tricks us into doing is acting like as though place doesn't matter right as acting as though context doesn't matter like sometimes we talk about technology as though it's like I mean we even use the word like the cloud right, as though it's from ether, as though it has no connection to the physical world, um, the people who built it, the, the people who, um, who, who designed it. And I think that all of those things really matter. So the book is about US history. That doesn't mean that it's not relevant. Um, sadly, the US I think has, particularly now has this really what I would call sort of um, a tech imperialist tendency to sort of spread its ideas everywhere. But yeah, the book is, is very much about sort of 20th century America. Yeah, that's, it would be interesting to run a comparison actually around sort of UK learning or ed tech, if you like, and um, how that compares with the US. But obviously there are, there are big influences which come out of the US around education and those kind of models and things. Um, and big money. Um, yeah, and big money. Well, I mean, although I guess we can blame the UK for Pearson, so we're off the we're off the hook on that one. That one's on you. <laughs> yeah, indeed. How did you get involved in in this area around looking That's, at ed tech, and now suddenly it's kind of the big big buzzwords? How? Yeah, um, it's not really one specific thing. I mean, I would say you know that I don't have a I don't have a formal educational background in education or in technology, mm. um, but my own my own sort of school background. Um, I I'm from Wyoming, um, but my mom is British, and sort of I spent some time when I was in fourth grade. So when I was about ten, um, she sent me to live with my aunt in in England, um, and so I've and I went to high school in at Oxford at a school in Oxford. So I have experiences in different kinds of schools and I've always been interested in the ways in which schools and teaching were different in other places and interested in the ways in which technology kind of got hooked into that. Um, when, I was, when I taught briefly in college for a while and it was around the time when the learning management system or the VLE um, became sort of mandated mm -hmm. and just spent a lot of time thinking about how, how does again, how does context, how does the place change teaching? And then how does the technology shape teaching and what are our expectations? And so it just has always been an interest of mine. And I was happened to 
be it, have a blog at the right time in the right mm -hmm. place and have managed to make a career out of writing about this. I'm very fortunate in that way. Yeah, I was doing a bit of uh, reading around your, your blog and um, before teaching, I was involved in technology and technology PR and uh, worked for an IT company. And um, I saw there that, you know, obviously there were tech journalists and obviously you became a journalist writing around education technology. Um, and I think only recently, obviously, with with the pandemic and, and COVID, that obviously it's changed a lot of things, hasn't it? Um, yeah. And there'll be a lot of teachers, hopefully, while well, listening to this this podcast, thinking, you know, how how do I take my teaching forward? What sort of advice do you have in in the classroom um, with all this noise, if you like, that's going yeah. on around us? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think a, a couple of things, you know, the, my book is dedicated to human teachers. And I think that that's the piece that despite you know, human teachers, not teaching machines. And that's the piece I think that particularly now and particularly when we're forced to sort of have to mediate our student teacher relationships through technology to remember the human and to put the human first, I think is crucial. Um, learning, teaching and learning are human endeavors and there's no way, no how, never, despite what people say or imagine, science fiction, fantasy, machines are not going to replace teachers. AI is not, will never replace teachers. They simply can't because it's a human endeavor. It's not just about sort of it's not like the matrix where we, you stick a tube in someone's brainstem and thus sort of fill them up with how, with, you know, knowledge of Kung Fu. That's, <laughs> mm. that's not how it works. And so, I mean, I think my advice for teachers would be, how do you center, how do you center the human and how do you center something that's humane and not let the, not let the technology dictate what, you do and to keep you know to keep your sent to keep your students real people not just avatars not just mm -hmm. images on a screen how do you how do you keep how do you keep that centered i mean that said i think because of the pandemic i see a lot of kind of pretty awful stuff happening a lot of things that we knew were happening you know for example lack of access to devices unequal access to you know to good internet um, students who don't have great home environments, students who, um, for whom school was a, a, a respite from, from, other, from other circumstances. And so, you know, I think it's an incredibly challenging time. I think it was before the pandemic. And I think that now though, are there ways in which we can actually make change because it's so stark, the things that aren't working. Um, and I mean that both at a, systemic level, like what do we have to change at a huge, broad, think big, dream big, systemic level, but what are the little tiny changes that we can make as well as, you know, as individuals to make things, to make things better, to make students' lives better, to make teachers' lives better, parents' lives, our, our, you know, our coworkers' lives better. So I hope that it's an opportunity for change. Yeah, and that really gets us all thinking at an individual level um, and how we can bring about change and, and make it humane. As you talk about, we have something simple at my school where we've donated, use laptops, for example, to, 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 pe to pupils who, who don't have 
that access to technology you know a lot of us sort of take it for granted but a lot of people don't have that access um that they need yeah um, I mean I think it's you know I would say it's you know my uh my husband and I both are at home now and we've had um our college age my college age stepdaughter has also been with us and so she's in school he's on zoom all the time and you know we're 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 fine economic socioeconomically we're fine we all have our devices but even you know we still struggle with broadband we look around being like okay someone's someone's gonna you know we can't do we can't have netflix and two zoom calls yeah. <laughs> at once and we struggle with space you know um you know if someone's doing a pretty important call we you know say like maybe hold off on laundry it's kind of allowed yeah. in the apartment and so i mean i think it's you know, even under the best of circumstances, this is an incredibly challenging time. And so, and I think, you know, I mean, I think that for other students, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been impossible. It's been impossible. And so what do we do with that? You know? Yeah. So do you have any ideas around how, how we can make change, whether that's at a, a, a higher, higher level or right down to sort of the classroom level? Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, um, because it's been one of these products that's really been, it's been in the news a lot, and I think it's been really shoved in the faces of school administrators, and then that, of course, trickles down to faculty, and that's the online test proctoring, right? So that's this idea that um, I that you, there's software that will control a student's um, machine, their laptop, and ostensibly make sure that they're not cheating. And it comes with, I mean, it's just an incredibly invasive surveillance tool. Um, it, it, some of it does biometrics. So it's, um, it's assessing what, you know, it's actually sort of taking a face print. It might track the rhythm of students' um, keyboard clicks. Um, sometimes the, 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 these, the software looks at the room around, um, they can ask students to actually point the camera at their lap um, to see if they've got notes hidden, to see if there's other sounds, like are there other people talking in the background? And this is all just incredibly invasive technology. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it, it should prompt us to ask several questions, sort of why, why don't we trust students like what is our obsession with what is our obsession that students are all cheaters mm. that we would want to use this technology in the first place why don't we trust students and then the second piece is what kind of assessments are we asking students to do how are we assessing students um are we asking like what again there are ways to sort of assess students that it's impossible to cheat right if you're giving if you're giving students a multiple choice exam that you've given for years and years and years and the answers are out there either out there that someone you know mm -hmm. students the students know what the answers are because that was the same test last year in your case in in the geography class yeah. or if this, the, the answers are sort of readily available online um, why is that the way in which we're assessing students can we be more creative can we can we have different ways of having students demonstrate their knowledge in ways that they can't cheat, right? That yeah. cheating isn't even, it's not even a question that comes up because mm -hmm. they're actually doing meaningful work. 
right? That they're doing work that that isn't um, <laughs> that isn't a multiple choice test. That they're actually contributing knowledge. I mean, I think you know we don't we don't trust students, and I don't mean just college students. I mean we don't trust students as scholars. We don't see that they too can be many scientists and many scholars. Students can do interesting, meaningful, relevant work that matters to them, that matters to their community, that matters um, to the school classroom or their or their neighborhood. Mm. And nobody wants to cheat at that because it's, it's real, it's mm. meaningful. And why isn't that the kind of work that we're asking students to do? Instead of spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on software that you know, surveils students and treats them like criminals. Yeah, and surely that's the pure, the real personalized learning there. Where if mm. if if you're if you're assessing a pupil on on a topic or a subject and you're asking them to do that verbally, then 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 you can really see see the passion pour out of that pupil or the knowledge or, or gain more of an understanding rather than a multiple choice a b or c or yeah or even you know and i'm a writer and i i love the essay i think the essay is just a beautiful genre of writing i'm i mean i say that i'm particularly adept at it so <laughs> <laughs> there you go but like we have this obsession i think in in schools about the essay and there like that's just not that's just not a genre of writing that a lot of adults um myself aside spend their time doing are there other ways in which students can demonstrate their written written ability um that aren't the essay you know are there other projects that we can have them do again i'm not saying that like never write an essay but i'm just saying like there are meaningful things that are relevant um you know one of the projects i think that i see that i see um, uh, professors do is have students, for example, contribute to Wikipedia. And so I think that Wikipedia often gets sort of lambasted that it's sort of a, another a, a website where you cheat, but it's actually a lot of scholarship and you can learn a lot about how references work, how the web works, and then you're actually giving back. You're actually producing scholarship that other people are going to utilize when it comes when they have a question online so you're doing work that you're doing work that matters to the world not just matters to your teacher yeah fascinating I know I've I've heard pupils in my classroom talk about oh have you copied and pasted that from Wikipedia or where are you getting your information from but but yeah you can certainly rather than clamping down on those kind of things or stamping stamping out that yeah. Wikipedia is you you're building trust around that I think and that's and so helping I mean and helping I, I mean I think that this is one of the things I mean I think that you know the UK and the US there's so much misinformation online right now misinformation disinformation and helping students um, recognize and be I think have a have a have better literacy around the web, right? Have them understand, you know, I, I mean, actually a place to go to for reliable information is Wikipedia, not, you know, if you're looking up information on, um, let's just say COVID vaccines, for example, yeah. Wikipedia is a better place to start because there are editors, there is, there is check, there are checks on that. Then websites that are sort of disrespectful um, disreputable and full of full of misinformation telling you you know that you'll get the 5g chip the bill gates fill in the blank with the crazy stories around 
around the vaccine. Yeah, so students, have, students have to know how to use mm -hmm. the web because look around, <laughs> look around us at what happens when people don't understand how, uh, how to use the web. Yeah, and that leads to more divide and you know, what do we want our society or future generations to grow up into? It's yes. fascinating. I think, um, you know, we've been talking now, yeah, for a, for a good amount of time. So I just want to sort of draw it sort of towards the end, really, Audrey. Um, let, what, what do you think is the future of the classroom? You've talked about some interesting points around um, being more human and making it humane. I'm going to enjoy kind of distilling this down into sort of a couple of takeaways, maybe more for, for, for listeners who want to skip forward. But it, how do you see the future of the classroom? Or what would you like it to look like inside and outside the classroom? So these are, those are kind of two different questions. My fear, and this is what I don't want it to look like, but this is my fear, is that we're seeing this growing divide. And I think that certain students, um, and we can, we can say um, based on socioeconomic class, based on race, based on national origin, um, immigration status, they will have a humane, they will have a humane education. Their, their classrooms will um, be small, their teachers will be caring, people, they, will get, they will get lots of support and attention. And then I think the, perhaps even the majority of students are going to find themselves in an education system that is more automated, that is more mechanistic, um, that has, that the classrooms are larger and, and not just larger as they are today with, you know, sort of 50 students in them or something like that, but on they, they move online and there are thousands of students. And so there's not a human, um, there's not a chance, um, there's not a chance for sort of individual attention and there's no care, right? There's like none of these, none of the software, none of it cares. That care is not a function that you can program <laughs> into a computer. You can, it can might generate warning signs, but it doesn't care. And so that's what I worry about is that we're gonna see this split and some students, very few students, privileged students will have an education that is sort of that ideal that we always talk about. Um, and then I think more and more students are going to have a very mechanized education. I hope that's not the case. I mean, I hope that's not the case, but that's what I worry about. Indeed, that's fascinating. I'm gonna leave it on that edge hopefully we'll get to review this in the future again i don't know but thank you so much for your time audrey thank yeah you. thank you this has been great great conversation Following my conversation with Audrey, I really wanted to provide you with some of my analysis around it. And I think the first point I would make is that it's really important that we understand the history of education technology. After all, it's an area that's over a century old. With more understanding, we can make better informed decisions, and this will in turn help shape our own um, strategy, whether that's being implemented at a school or whether it's a startup thinking about a new product to, to bring to market. Secondly, teaching is ultimately a human activity and technology is going to be no replacement here and teaching will remain centre and I'm pretty convinced of that. 
I think thirdly, we need to be aware of how we use educational technology and the influences it can have on pupil behavior. Um, fourthly, I think we can think about assessments and how education technology has a role in that. Um, yes, it can lead to efficiencies, but do we need to think about other ways where we can introduce more creativity into assessments to create more meaningful work and to see that from pupils? Um, so that would be my key analysis. I think I would just say that the, the book is out now. Um, I've provided the links in the podcast at the end of the show here. You can visit classfutures.com. If you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed, do subscribe so you receive future episodes to your email inbox and of course you can follow us on twitter at classfeatures.com